Hello, I am Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mel Plus. I'm joined this week as every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones. Imogen. Hello. It's been an interesting week. It has, yes. I spent a lot of time on the telephone. Yes, because all of your friends are Russian. Yes, or actually all my Ukrainian ones have gone, thankfully. But yes, no, it's really interesting, bearing in mind what we're going to discuss later on today. One of them, my lovely friends, Katya, who's been on this this podcast, Princess, she's in St. Petersburg and she is watching Russian television at the same time as watching the BBC on her laptop. Crikey. And she says the difference is extraordinary. Really? About what they're being told in Russia and what we're being told here. Okay, okay. Um, so that's quite Completely different. Totally different, totally yeah. different. What's and the mood in Russia, does she say? Well, she says, I mean, we've been getting ideas that there are people demonstrating. Yeah. But she says there's very, very few. Yeah. I think she said a lot of people are being very quiet. Uh, scared, presumably. Scared. But also, sort of, there is a kernel of them that still thinks this is... What Russia should be doing. Yeah. And is it right that all the men between the ages of 18 and 55 have been banned from leaving the country from that Sunday? That is absolutely true, yeah. yes. My friend Simon, he's in Moscow. He had to fire 110 of his staff yesterday. Wow. And Why? Because he, he can't get access to any money. Right. You can't pay them. What? Okay, right. Because obviously the, all the banks are yeah. shut and he's got no access to cash anymore. And he's moving his main body of people out, I think, to Turkey. Mm. So everyone is leaving east. Mm. Anyone who's got any money has is going. Has gone or is going. Is yeah. going, yeah. And anyone, you know, men under the age of 55 will not be allowed to leave the country and as of really Sunday. It's really going to hurt the Russian people, all this stuff, isn't it? It's just really it's so depressing. It's yeah. almost like the last 30 years haven't happened. No. That's what's so upsetting about it. And all the people who, you know, I mean, as I said last week, that whole sort of, you know, that hatred of the Russians that mm. I remember in the 1980s. Mm. Everyone, you know, if you went to Russia or had anything to do with Russia, you were awful and a commie and yeah. all that stuff. That I can see that sort of coming, coming back. back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, because most Russians are... Perfectly nice people. Totally. Yes, very lovely, interesting, intelligent very cultured. people. I mean, yeah. a, lot, a lot like the Ukrainians. Exactly. Uh, well, they're actually cut from exactly the same exactly. cloth. <laughs> I know. No, it's just, it's just tragic. And it's tragic for both countries, yeah. really. Yes, it's very, very, very sad. And a lot of people who have invested in that, the sort of the new Russia. so Russian yeah. dream, feel incredibly betrayed. Mm. That, you know, all that energy and that affection that they've poured into that country is just disappeared overnight yeah. you know as obviously has everyone who's you know been involved in the ukraine as well yeah but yeah no it's terrible and conscription obviously yes yes but also there was a very funny story that i heard that you know obviously the troops that are seem to be the 40 mile convoy well apparently i don't know if this is true we can ask our conspiracy theorist (laughs) person later but uh the the soldiers are making holes in their own petrol tanks what so they can't get yes (laughs) so they've run out of petrol i mean there's a lot of footage of them sort of looking miserable and really wanting to go home and of course wouldn't you i mean they're all very young and they're all being told that, that, you know, they were going to be welcomed with open arms and flowers. And instead of which, no. No. Anyway. Yes, but I mean, that's, that's, what I, that, that's a very Russian story, the idea that you, that you sabotage your own tank. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so we're going to do a lot of this today. So we'll, we do also have a little bit of fluff. So Good, thank we've God got, for that. <laughs> we're going to be talking to Dr. David Robert Grimes on disinformation. Yeah. And we're also going to be talking to a, a British Army colonel. Yes. Richard Kemp. And... 
Purple eyeshadow. A few, thank God. Uh, <laughs> do you know what? I'm sorry, I just had to do one thing. That no, I agree. <laughs> I, we've got to do something. Otherwise, we'll just sort of just sink into this vat of depression. And I, I did, so yesterday I, I spent the entire day applying number 17 makeup. Oh, well, you look very good today. It's quite good, actually. Mm, good. Two pounds a pop. Wow. I mean, you can basically buy the whole range for about the price of a pair of tights. Yes, or a prawn sandwich. <laughs> or a prawn sandwich and Marks and Spencer's. Perfect. I mean, it's not like the old number 17 that we used to have, which is all neon eyeshadows. Yes. I mean, there are a bit of those. Oh, I quite like those, though. Yeah. But you're, you're looking good. Mm, it's good. It's yeah. good stuff. It's good stuff. So I would recommend it. We are going to talk to Hannah Betts about purple eyeshadows. Thank so God for that. But first, as war erupts in Ukraine, well, it has already erupted. Yes, it yes, has. Yes, yes, yes. Russian disinformation experts are peddling lies, including supposed pro-Russian bloggers who don't exist and mm. whose faces are made up by AI. I am joined by disinformation expert Dr. David Robert Grimes, author of The Irrational Ape. I mean, I don't believe anything the Russians say. And Imogen earlier was saying that she's got lots of friends in Russia at the moment. And one of them was watching the BBC coverage and the <laughs> Russian coverage and the sort of kind of abyss between the two mm. was just huge. You know, can we believe anything? Honestly, the, the answer is probably no. So Russia have mm. a long history of, in, of engaging in disinformation. In fact, it goes back to the imperial age, but they formally inaugurated a department of disinformation almost 100 years ago in 1923. Mm. Now, they've been doing this as a military tactic for a very long time, because if you sow discord and confusion in the ranks of your enemies, that's very, very effective. In the era of social media, that's become incredibly easy to do. You don't mm. need to bribe a journalist or buy a printing press. You can mass produce websites to say whatever mm. you want. And this is something that Russia have absolutely excelled at in the past 15, 20 years. Mm. One of the interesting things is what actually breaks through, do you know what I mean, in the sort of story-wise, what captures the imagination of, I mean, you know, the whole sort of Russian what are the element, What are the elements of, yeah. a good, of a good Russian fake yeah. news story? Yeah. That, that's really, so firstly, what you want to do if you are creating fake news, so to say, you want it to travel far and wide. Mm. So the most easy way to do that is to make it emotive and visceral. People mm. tend to shut off their critical faculties if something makes them outraged or scared mm. or disgusted. These are the strongest predictors of virality in online content. So, you know, and you probably know it yourself, you go on Facebook or Twitter, people are sharing things that make them angry and outraged. Mm. So one of the first things that disinformation tends to do is it tends to paint a target on something and say, this is terrible. But often the, the intention is weird. It's not always to convince you. Sometimes disinformation is very poor quality. What it's supposed to do is make you apathetic and distrusting. If there's a huge multi-stream, uh, multi-volume, multi-channel stream of, of information to catch up with, most people become overwhelmed and just disinclined to engage. Mm. And that is also, this is called the Russian fire hose model of propaganda. It's high mm. volume, unrelenting, mm. multi-channel. And unfortunately, social media is precisely that. So it, mm. it lends itself to it very well, unfortunately. Well, yeah, because you see, the thing is, in the olden days, when you had the old-fashioned media, which um, Imogen and I grew up in, <laughs> um, you had to actually check your facts before mm. you wrote something or wrote a story. And, and you know, we didn't always get it completely right. But now people retweet things and share things without checking the source material at all. So it's just... Absolutely. A deluge. A deluge. It's just incredibly easy. I mean, one really good example is the sort of uh, Russian disinformation attack on fracking. You know, uh, Russia Today, which is the Kremlin-controlled television channel, 
Scotland and mm. the UK. They used to run all these stories about how evil fracking was. And, you know, at one point, I think one of their presenters said that frackers were like paedophiles. And of course, <laughs> what? And of course the whole point of that was to destabilise the fracking industry so mm. that we would be more reliant on gas. On Russian gas. Mm. On, on Russian gas, yeah. And they often play both sides of the argument. For example, during the uh, Trump election campaign, Russian disinformation targeted both Democratic voters and Republican ones in the Republican field that obviously it amplified Donald Trump, mm. but it also had the Never Hillary movement. There was a lot of Russian disinformation behind that to make mm. the Democratic Party more divided because that was yeah, beneficial right. to the project they're trying to do. So often they won't even be consistent in one worldview. They will be trying yeah. to foster division. And that's always yeah. the best model for them. What was the best one that you've seen recently? The one that you've thought, oh my God, that was, you know, hats off to that one. Well, actually, the most effective <laughs> thing I've seen recently has been a counter disinformation campaign and, and an unprecedented one. During the uh, beginning of the Ukraine invasion, American mm. intelligence actually released reports saying Russia planned to release this disinformation that mm. we're going to attack. And that was incredibly effective. You probably noticed during the Ukraine um, invasion. That Russian mm. disinformation hasn't had the same teeth to it because mm. I think finally uh, the Americans are getting wise to it, and that's a really important development. Yes, and I think also that I also think people on social media are getting wise to it. Mm. We don't want to be taken in, we don't want to be duped anymore by these people. Yeah, I'm just wondering what you think about the Ukrainian PR machine because I think it's they've done an amazingly brilliant job, bearing in mind what little resources they have. Absolutely, they have been absolutely stunning at this, and uh, probably because mm. they know what to expect, but also they've been radical with their transparency. And yes, I think they've been amazing. They've been open with it. They've been showing everything that's going on on the ground. That's really important. And that makes it mm. much harder for Kremlin bots to spin a narrative around it when actually it's being countered. Pre-bunked is the term that is technically used. Before mm. it even becomes, it's very hard to diswedge disinformation once it gets out there. But mm. if you can neutralize it before it takes over, and I think that's what's happening in Ukraine. That is incredibly powerful and really effective. Well, I, and the way think, forward too, I think. Yes, and I think they seem to be also making some inroads into the Russian sort of information machine because yeah. because we've got all these videos of Russian soldiers crying, crying mm. and calling their mums. Mm. I mean, you know, that's that's sort of they're fighting back on that front as well, aren't they? But they absolutely are. And it, it's interesting that the, the the Russian campaign of disinformation fell apart so terribly. Mm. You had Vladimir Putin claiming denazification yes. as a justification for going to Ukraine. And, and given Zelensky himself is Jewish and lost many family members in the Holocaust, mm, yeah. it was as insulting as it was asinine. But yes. they've ultimately, they've played the strategy so well that um, Ukraine have really mm. neutralized Russia in a way I've never seen anyone do before. And maybe yeah, that's yeah. the way forward for the rest of us too. And they've taken incredibly sort of clever themes like, you know, Russian, the Russian warship, go... F yourself. Yes. I mean, that is yeah. a, a sort yeah. of a, a meme almost that's gone right the way through yes. all their information. That, that's you know, you see, wish. yeah, absolutely. Yes, and the other one which I thought was incredibly extraordinary was the one about putting sunflower seeds in your pockets, which is what one of the Ukrainian women said to the soldiers. You know, make sure you put sunflower seeds in your pockets so that when you die, you will grow flowers in this country which I thought was incredibly beautiful. But um, but that also has taken yes. off all over the place. Yes, and I did like Zelensky's line of, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Oh, yes, exactly, yes. That was, I mean, he, he's, he's, he's obviously so very... he's played a blinder, yeah, actually. Yeah. And all of the videos that have been released of him doing disco dancing and just being sort of 
silly and fun. A three sixty person yes, rather than a so cipher. It contrasts yeah. with this sort of image of, of. I mean, Putin does have an image problem now, doesn't yes, he? Yes, he does. <laughs> I, I think uh, overdue image problem, yes. Because, I mean, he's, he's been a tyrant for quite some time. Yes, um, I love yes, he, he seems not approachable in the way that Zelensky is. No. Um, he, he's almost uh, past the point of being human. He's this kind of figure. Um, and yet, at the moment, that's working very poorly. and That's not working in his favour at all. In the past, no. it has. Um, yeah. But also, I don't, think, like, I don't think Putin likes to get his hands dirty with the disinformation side of it, he usually leaves that to the IRA, the um, not 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 the Irish one, the uh, the Internet Research <laughs> Agency in, in in Petersburg. But I think at the moment it's being deflected back on him, and he's being correctly blamed for it. And yeah. that changes the dynamic. Um, and he, obviously this war is not going well for them for Russia at the moment mm. at all. And no, it's really that, not. that also they had no problems eight years ago rolling in. They um, had no problems backing up Assad in Syria. And now they're getting resistance. And I think the dynamics are changing. And I'm not sure how that will manifest in the future. But it is very interesting to watch. Yes. And I might go and read your book. No, I think it sounds amazing. fascinating. Yes, yes. Because I'm a very gullible person. I'm a really, really gullible person. I, you know. Are you? Yeah, really easily. Uh, I don't don't believe that for a second. You're you're (laughs) far too insightful. I'm I'm old now because and I've learnt not to be when I was younger I was always, you know, I was always that person. But you know when they used to come up to you and do that trick and point to something on your stomach and you'd look down and then they'd yes. slap you in the face. That yes. always happened to me. Because <laughs> I always fell for it. <laughs> Okay, well, uh, anyway. well, well, that just means that you trust people, but that's uh, oh, unfortunately what disinformation takes advantage of sometimes. It does. But, I yeah, mean, we're, it, we're getting more savvy to it. I think as a, as a society, and that's really important. Yeah, and overdue. And then, you know, it's not just the fake news; it's all those sort of awful scams. You know, so, someone that old ladies fall for. You mm. know, just that we live in a sort of age of disinformation. Where well, you, it's just very sad that you become mistrustful of yeah. everything that comes your way, and yeah. that's what's very distressing about it. I think. Yeah. There's certain things we can do. I mean, it, it is easy to get um, overwhelmed by it. And I mean, I write about that quite a bit. But mm. some of the things we can do to protect ourselves are actually quite minor. One of the mm. ones I would say is information hygiene. The same way that mm. when COVID was, was ravaging the place, that we wouldn't go and start like licking doors and randomly embracing people. We have mm. a little bit of savvy about if you're exposed to information, particularly if it makes you emotive or mm. elicits a reaction from you, just stop for a second and go, is this supposed to make me emotive? What's the source this is coming from? Can I verify it independently? And if mm. you can't verify it, maybe accept that this is potentially trying to manipulate you. The same way mm. you wouldn't open a dodgy email attachment. If we yeah. treat information the same way, we put that information hygiene, we will protect ourselves an awful lot because it's much easier to not get infected than to disinfect ourselves, if that makes yeah. sense. Absolutely. So how am I being played and who's playing me? Wise advice. Wise advice. Thank you so much. That was disinformation expert Dr. David Robert Grimes, author of The Irrational Ape. I thought that he was fascinating. I want him to come to every single dinner party I ever go to (laughs) so that every single (laughs) bloody idiot who sits next to me say, no, but this isn't true. No, but have you spoken to my great friend David? (laughs) He knows an awful lot. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. You are listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine, and Imogen Edwards-Jones. You can visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces, and more. And if you want to get in touch, tweet us at mailplus, me at Westminster Wag, or Imogen at Imogen E.J. 
if World War III erupts, could Britain actually fight? The British army has been shrinking. By 2025, it will be the smallest it has been since the 18th century and less than half of what it was at the beginning of the 1990s. Joining us now is Colonel Richard Kemp, former chairman of COBRA and a British army commander. Colonel Kemp, thank you very much for your time. Um, My pleasure. Should we be worried? Should we be worried about the numbers of soldiers available? We should be extremely worried. As the dangers around the world have increased, the size of the British Army has reduced. And this has been going on since the end of the Cold War when we seized upon the peace dividend and decided to spend it on social projects, etc. And progressively cut down the armed forces to the stage where in the Army alone we now have only 72,500 people. Uh, right. thanks to the last defence review last year, so which is tiny, very, very small. Mm. And one does get a sense, you know, you, you read these stories about, you know, the, the army having to have to sort of go off and do sort of diversity days and, and all sorts of absurd things. I don't know, I get a sense that maybe they're also not really, I don't know, silly thing to say, but fit for purpose. I agree with you, your concerns about diversity days and gender pronouns and all the other things that are mm. being forced upon the armed forces. I mean, of course, it's right that they should treat everybody equally, and uh, and, mm-hmm. and it, you know they're all part of the team, and that's always been the case during my service. Obviously, there are problems; mm-hmm. always are problems, but but nevertheless, uh, it, there seems now to be an obsession with it, which isn't mm-hmm. necessary, and is potentially damaging. Um, well, but I, I would think- still say that the army, the armed forces, are fit for purpose on the basis of their size. I mean, man for man, woman for woman, they're very very effective. But it's just the scale, really, that, that is the problem. Did we sort of get it wrong a few years back and to think, because we were all told that it was going to be a desk war, the idea that troops on the ground were, were not really necessary anymore. We, we, were we kidding ourselves when we decided that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an easy, easy get-out, really, if you don't want to spend so much money and you don't want to really contemplate the horrors of war. It's mm. easy to um, to say, well, it can all be done by computers and cyber and the rest of it. But of course, it can't, mm. as the people of Ukraine are finding out now to their great cost. But, you know, and last year, for example, we did cut the size of the army in particular. Uh, we cut the number of tanks we have to something now, down, now going down to something like 148 from mm. um, 300 and something, which if you compare it to Putin's army, he had. 1,200 tanks on the border of Ukraine, most of them now going into Ukraine. And we did that. The reason we made those really severe cuts, 10,000 cut to the army, was in order to put more money into the technical side, into cyber, into artificial intelligence, into drones, etc. Now, all of that is vitally important, but we need both. We can't just, one doesn't replace the other. I mean, at the moment, we spend about 2% of GDP. I mean, where do you think it would need to be in order to have a sort of efficient fighting force? I would say it would need to be doubled. It looks like, unless somehow Putin is brought down, it looks like Putin is going to be a permanent threat to the West, and that could well include carrying out attacks against NATO members. If that happens, we're under treaty obligation to defend them. You can't defend them with a a very small, very small army. And do you think that, I know this is a, a, this is a very controversial point, and I, I, but it's something I think we should do. Do you think we should bring back military service? Because I honestly don't understand why we, why we got rid of it in the first place. 
You mean compulsory service? Um, I, no, I just think, you know, we, there used to be... Well, training. You, you used to have to do... I mean, mm. I grew up in Italy, for example, and in Italy, you used to have to do 18 months of military service. You know, you got to the age of 18 or whatever it is, and you had to go and do 18 months where you got fit, learned to use a gun, learned to drive, you know, mm. so that you had some capability. Because I look at the Ukrainian people and they seem to have that capacity i don't know if they have military service but i just feel that we're i I think you know because we're so detached from war and have been for so long it feels to me like we have a population that just doesn't have any sense or capacity or understanding of what it would actually entail to have to defend your freedom yeah i mean it's a it's often debated and discussed and it quite often comes up when people talk about the fact that the armed forces are undermanned, we can't get mm. enough people to join, and therefore we should conscript them. I don't think it's necessary because, in terms of manning the army, because the reason that the armed forces are undermanned is because we have a non-effective recruiting organisation, a recruiting organisation that doesn't know how to recruit. And that was the case throughout my service as well. It's not just a new thing. It's always been the case. They've mm. never known how to do their job. There's no shortage of willing volunteers out there. They would Mm. come forward and they try to come forward and get frustrated by a system that seems to be designed to keep them out of the forces. Uh, In terms of a a sort of social service, I think think some form of national service would be a very good form of further education for many, many Mm. young people these days. And of course, as you say, could be of benefit if we do come under great pressure ourselves nationally and have to mobilise large numbers of the population. There are quite a few people who are part of the territorial army, though, aren't there? There's a... There's always that resource. It's there and it's small. And again, it's not fully manned to the levels that it's supposed to be. Mm. But there is that. And I think youth organizations, things like the Army Cadet Force, the Naval Cadets, Mm. the Air Force Cadets, the Scouts, all these things are Mm. very valuable organizations to help prepare people for. And, you know, even, even the cadets, people might laugh at this, but even the cadets provide, you know, military service, which makes them when they when when these young men and women join up they've got an edge over their fellows who haven't been in the cadets so those sort of things are useful yeah and so yeah i I don't think it's necessary to man the armed forces i think it's a good idea as a social service but but i do wonder if there's any likelihood of something like that being funded because of course it costs a lot of money obviously financially the country's in a pretty bad state anyway another two percent would be quite a big commitment i suppose wouldn't it yeah Another 1% is good as well, but I think, you know, to, mm. we need to be looking seriously at having armed forces that are capable of countering the kind of aggression mm. we're seeing from Putin today, and ours, quite honestly, are not at the scale they, they exist at, at the moment. No. Well, let's hope it doesn't come to that. Um, what do you think is going to happen, Colonel Kemp? How bad do you think it's going to get? Uh, I, th- I, th- I think uh, the likelihood is that Putin will overwhelm the Ukrainian forces in the fullness of time. How long it takes, we don't know. Well, I hope I'm wrong, but very much hope mm. I'm wrong. And that yeah. could well lead to a, a long-term, some form of long-term resistance if he leaves Russian troops in the country. And while mm. he remains in power, I think um, he does pose a threat to the rest of NATO, to certainly countries like the Baltic States, Moldova, etc. I think he does pose a threat to Eastern Europe and to NATO. And we can only really... I think, deter that threat by having strong armed forces deployed in Eastern European countries as we are beginning to do, but not, not, not quick enough and not strong enough. Do you think that he is guilty of war crimes? Well, I think his war in Ukraine is a crime. and I think it's, it's an illegal war of aggression. Mm. Um, and I think he should be tried for that. 
because mm. he's, he has brought about a great deal of suffering and death, all unnecessary, all unprovoked, um, as a re- result of waging war. When it comes to actual, more detailed war crimes inside Ukraine, I think we have to wait to see what, um, you know, the, how any investigations that take place mm. turn out, because it's not, as, it's not as simple or straightforward as it looks, and particularly when you've got the whole population effectively, or large parts of the population mobilized to fight the Russians the situation then becomes blurred as to whether someone's a combatant or a non-combatant because, mm. of course, most, most war crimes relate to soldiers killing innocent civilians and that becomes mm. more complex in this sort of situation. But I'm sure but among, is... you know, among what's going on, there is some indiscriminate killing of civilians. What do you think America's role is here? I mean, we all watched the State of Union address in which the president managed to confuse Ukraine with Iran. I mean, <laughs> how useful is America currently, do you think? Uh, I also saw Diane Abbott confusing Ukraine Croatia, with Croatia. Croatia, so yeah, exactly. Some people obviously are geographically challenged, <laughs> but um, I think, I think, I think that you know President Biden has a great deal to answer for in what's going on here. Of course, it's mm. Putin who who called the trigger, and it's Putin who is ultimately guilty. But I, I suspect he wouldn't have done what he did if he hadn't watched carefully how weak America was in in the debacle in Afghanistan. Not just mm. America, but NATO as a whole. I think that kind of weakness is provocative and did lead to, almost directly to the invasion at this time. And if you think about it, the the first invasion of Ukraine in 2014, when Putin took Crimea, mm. was when President Obama was the president of the United States. Then we have this one mm. with Biden. In between, we had Trump, and there was no aggression of this sort whatsoever from Putin. And I think... Mm. That is attributable, not necessarily to Trump's sort of diplomatic skills, but to the fact that he's such an unpredictable and volatile man that Putin probably would have been cautious about how he might react. Whereas with Biden in the chair, he was pretty confident that things would be relatively easy run for him. I mean, you don't really want to provoke someone like Trump, but, you know, actually Biden... Also, Trump had lots of connections with Moscow anyway before. He did the Miss World and all that sort of stuff. He was very much in... He'd been spent quite a bit of time in the capital before. I think he was himself was a a sort of nuclear deterrent in a way against um, (laughs) against the likes of Putin. Well, he was he was Agent Orange, wasn't he? Yes. yes. <laughs> well, oh, okay. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, let's hope it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what to hope really. We, uh, there's no good outcome. Let's hope for the least well, bad you, outcome. What you hope is that Putin just you know disappears quite soon. Mm. That's what you're hoping mm. for. Yes. I think that's the. I think that is the. What should be? I think NATO's strategy should be aimed to bring down Putin. Yes, mm. exactly. Um, My mother however, keeps ringing me up and saying, why haven't we taken him out? Why I hasn't know. someone taken yeah. him out? Every single person I speak to, every single woman I speak to, actually, mm. just wants the SAS to just abseil in. I think and, they're hoping and, the Russians are going to yeah. do it for us. That's yeah. what we're hoping, I think, isn't it? <laughs> I think, that, to be honest, I think that the only way he can be brought down is from within from exactly. within Russia. Mm. And that's not going to be mm. easy because they have. he has a stranglehold on all of the organs of the state, his, the mm. parliament and the Duma are uh, mm. filled with his placemen. So it's not, and he controls the army, or the armed forces, of course. So it's not easy, mm. but I think perhaps the most effective way of achieving it would be to put so much pressure on both legal and political on some of his oligarchs in the West mm. and, and mm. that have fortunes in the West that they turn on him and stage a palace coup against him. 
I think that could mm. be a possibility if enough pressure's piled on. But unfortunately, mm. the West tends, once the immediate problem is over, they tend to relax on these things and relax sanctions and things like that. If that happens this time, then he's probably with us until 2036, which yeah. current Russian law allows, which he brought in. Mm, of course. Yes. That was former Chairman of Cobra and British Army Officer Colonel Richard Kemp. I thought he was tremendous. Very Perry is Pantone's Colour of the Year 2022. <laughs> Sounds like menopausal. It does sound a bit weird. <laughs> and Lady Gaga has appeared on the red carpet in magnificently papal purple with matching glittery eyeshadow. <sighs> Thank goodness for Lady Gaga. <laughs> so why is purple eyeshadow having a moment? Thankfully, Hannah Betts oh, is here to explain it all. Hannah, Purple eyeshadow. Is, that just, is this just what we need after Brexit, a mm. pandemic and World War Three? Mm. It is. Was that a surprising answer? Um, I love that I'm called in in this field of expertise. When my inbox started filling up with the term very Perry, I assumed I was being trolled. Um, Mm. But no, it is Pantone's colour of the year 2022. And it's supposed to mean joyous creativity, sprightly, tentative regrowth. Of course, this was before World War III. Also, also, clearly, Um, whoever came up with the name has not heard of the perimenopause. Has anything ever met a woman? No, it's it's supposed to be periwinkle, isn't it? it? I'm triggered. Yeah, Um, periwinkle, isn't it? Oh, it's periwinkle, not perimenopause. No. I think think it was meant to conjure all shades of Queen Mother. Um, But in fact, it's made us all very angry. Um, But it is quite a nice shade. doesn't take much. Mm. No, no, exactly, because we're all perimenopausal. Um, Is it it a sort of cornflower blue? It is. I've called it mid-cornflower deep lavender. Oh, right. God. That's a lot oh, okay. of words. So and actually, it, does, it doesn't look like a black eye. That's my only worry. Does it look no, like a black eye? No, it doesn't eye? look like a black eye. Um, okay, good. I think it's rather lovely. I think the nearest to it is probably a MAC eyeshadow called Cobalt. Oh, um, okay. But I always do a bit of purple me, partly because I have green eyes with a purple ring around them. So, you know, why not play up the freak? Um, is, it, um, but, is it one of those ones that you just put on like a single colour on your eyelid? Like a stripe. I do love I, that look. Because um, I can't yeah. do that. You can't do that unless you've got really, really, really smooth skin. Mm. Or you're under 25. Or you're under 25. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like you're a me, Korean beauty got... infant. Quite a small... I mean, you you two have got quite big eyes. I've got just a tiny, <laughs> tiny little squitty thing. And I do do that one shot of colour. Mm. And it works oh, quite well on... Cool. It depends on your eye. It depends mm-hmm. on your eye. Yeah. If you've got a bigger lid, then you're going to want a couple of shades to play with and mm. to do a bit, of, a bit more. But I, mm. I do like that little shot. Mm. Mm. Helen Mirren does it a lot. Yeah. yeah. And she looks wonderful in it. Lady Gaga did a more flamboyant thing where she took the colour right up to just below her eyebrows. Right. But then Zendaya, who obviously um, I turn to at all times. Um, <laughs> sidebar, I that never, is whenever, true. I never leave the house without checking what Zendaya no, is doing. Zendaya. Um, <laughs> she did a bit of liner. She did a sort of edgy... Did she? Yeah, and actually it okay. looks brilliant, and I've done that Can't too. I so that. do you think there's a move away? Because like for the last 20 years, we've basically been doing... Blending. Blending, blend, mm. and also shades that have basically enhanced 
kind of skin color yeah, shade. Yeah, so, neutral so Kardashian. Neutral Kardashian oh, stuff, so you know. And all, and all of that sort of blue. It's quite interesting because I wrote today a piece about the return of number 17 makeup, which I mm. associate with unnatural colors. Mm. Yes, yeah, sort of 80s club so 80s, but things, But boy, yes. George, karma chameleon exactly. colors. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, yes, like, yes, sort of, like teal Teal yes. was a thing, and I remember. it's partly a retro revival. It's partly yeah. that rather than think about now. I don't know if you've seen the current grants here, but they give you three options for fashion, 80s, 90s, noughties. Um, oh. so it's basically our whole lives is yes. what's fashionable <laughs> now. It's partly that. It's partly boredom. It's partly just for pleasure. I mean, yeah, I know. the news I is know. so grim. It but is. actually, having a little flight of fancy on a purple patch... I'm sorry, but it's getting me through. Yes. Um, and I know some people will be angry because they think it's trivial. It but is trivial. We need, <laughs> but that's we need fine. Trivia. Well, I mean, we all know about the lipstick effect mm. in exactly. the Second World War, and we all know that you know women in times of real hardship. You know, by makeup but if makeup is a little bit of pleasure mm. it's even yeah. in 1984 I seem to remember there's that wonderful scene where Winston where she puts makeup on and Winston's exactly. a bit surprised by yeah. it um, and you know Churchill kept lipstick coming in during the war because he mm. knew people need trivia in their mm. lives and mm. actually going back to what you said about the neutrals and all this sort of thing it depends on your colouring so for someone like me who's got mm. cool tone colouring Purple is the equivalent of my brown. It's a sort of mm-hmm. added value brown and mm. much more flattering for me than all those dumb colors. But then mm. equally, if you're a warmer shade, I was thinking about Imo and thinking, I bet she looks wonderful in kind of heathers and sludgy mauves. And I bet those would look... I think, Imogen, I, think Imogen, <laughs> I think Imogen would look great in navy and blue. I think blue eyeshadow. Oh. I think Imogen yeah. is a blue mascara girl. Oh, God yes. damn it, really? Yes. I've never yes. done that. Yes, yes. you're definitely and a blue mascara girl. of colour, even if yeah. you're not ready for yeah. the full whack. Mm. And I know my editor said to me, look, Bets, you know, you're basically a mentalist. <laughs> what about the readers? <laughs> um, and I do understand that point of view. But even if you're not ready for that, replacing your normal dark brown or black or whatever coal yeah. or shader with one of these little off black. Chanel's mm. very good at them because French women are so good at that. You know, they, I they tell have you what I do. Black. I often use reds on my eyes because they really well, suit me. I was about me. to say that I used to wear a dark red. I, I, so mm-hmm. I often use a dark red or a sort of purple, and then I tend to overlay it with a bit of black, so mm. you get a blacky exactly. red color. You can look well, like a junkie, though. That's the only thing. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, try not to look as if you're actively on crack. But actually, our readers know this because at Christmas they voted for. Charlotte Tilbury eyeliner is their eye product yes. of the year. And yes. it's called something like Rock and Coal Velvet Violet. But actually, it's a sort of brownie, minky mauve. But yes. again, it's one of these dark colours with a hint of something. Yeah. And She's very clever, clever with her colours, Charlotte Tilbury. She's really mm. clever well, with her colours. Well, she does purple as well, and Charlotte loves yeah. her golden colours mm. and her, yeah. you know, warm pinks and things. But even she has a purple. For me, for a cool girl... Mac is the way to go because okay, their so you're recommending Mac true. purple. Okay, yeah, but, so, I mean some so, of those. There's one called Ready to Party, which is very pale, and I put that together with something called Grand Galaxy, which is a kind of grubby yeah. violet. And oh my goodness, the compliments, does, Viney, the compliments think, roll in. <laughs> does, Bar- um, does Barry does Barry M still exist? Because they always used to do really good oh, bright colours. Oh yes. 
does it? Yeah, Barry M. But my favorite bourgeois palette has a couple of tones in it, one to suit yeah. cooler shades, one to suit warmer ones. And that uh, currently, it's, I think my favorite ever palette is £4.19 on Amazon, ladies. Oh, I say. So get in, that's and that's a, a bourgeois one, which again yes. is good at these hints. Of. I'm taking notes. But actually, I'm going taking back notes. to number 17, if you're a warm toned lady, they've got a palette, an eye palette at the moment called Pinks, and it's nothing yes. of the sort. It's orangey yeah. browns plus purples. So that would suit a warm toned woman very well. And again, it's yeah. Bobby Bargain, it's five quid. They've got a brilliant palette, which is called, I think it's called Glitters, and it's got a really fantastic sort of peacock blue in it. Okay, we're going Ooh. to boots after this yes, now. Yes, we're going to boots after this. <laughs> Actually, I, should tell you, I tell you an awful secret. Hannah, every time we, literally, we finish, they've got a <sighs> swanky terrible. new boots on High Street Kensington, and whenever Imogen and I finish this podcast, we end up in there. And last week we went in there, we bought loads of MAC mascara. I know, it's a disaster. Uh, and I'm some interested. lipstick. <laughs> Did you get the new one? There's a new mascara. I leave the carrier bag from Boots. Yeah, we got the new MAC mascara, which we're both wearing. Imogen doesn't like it. She says it makes her eyes sting. Sting, yeah. I'm fine with it. (laughs) It's because I'm indestructible. But yeah, we go to Boots and uh, and it's all... I love that. Yes. It's your reward. (laughs) It's our reward. It's tragic how easily we're left, really. <laughs> anyway, thank you, thank you, Hannah. I shall go. We'll go and do. I'm, I'm just. I'm very yeah, glad. Go and, get, go and get some purple. Go and get yeah. some. Go and get some number seventeen. I mean, retromania, ladies. I will. Yes, exactly. And also, all for the price of a cup of coffee and a slice mm. of avocado I toast. Know. I mean, mm, what price dumb. happiness? Five quid. No, five pounds. The lipsticks are two pounds. Great. Oh, thank you, <laughs> Hannah Betts. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Sarah Vine. <laughs> that was Daily Mail beauty columnist Hannah Betts. You've been listening to the Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine, and Imogen Edwards Jones. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> 